Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are a part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of Miyagi Mornings. Today is episode 141. And um, today's episode came to me this morning when I woke up in bed. I, I woke up, and I just had this thought in my head. And it was, the only way we can know what is, is by first determining what isn't. And there's probably a bunch of different ways that can be assembled. I'm sure other people haven't assembled it in, in more eloquent ways. Um, but it is a basic process of elimination. And it has a lot to do with why in earlier episodes, for instance, I said that I don't really trust the scientific institutions of the world. Um, and I'm asking now on the live feed, do you trust scientific institutions And I'm going to ask in a little bit a different question about science. Do you trust the scientific process? And I think those are two different things. And the reason that I, I tend personally, again, it's up to you guys to tell me what you think of when it comes to um, scientific, you know, do you trust scientific institutions? Do you trust trust the science the way that the media uses that? That's, that's up to you. I've got nope, not a chance, et cetera, coming into the uh, feed. And the reason, one of the reasons that I tend not to trust science as a community, as an authority, as an institution, is because the last thing that belongs in science is conflation. So when you're talking about whether or not, for instance, uh, anthropomorphic global warming is real, claiming that because we had a hurricane that proves it is about as unscientific as it gets. I mean, it really is. Like, no matter how much you, you, you take that theory and you believe in that theory, um, those two things don't go together. What we need to be doing to get an answer in most situations is the elimination of everything that isn't part of that thing. The more we take out, the more we strip it down to something that we can actually experiment with and we can test. And we can either prove mathematically or at least the math works so it's a valid theory or we can actually do a controlled experiment, the more we determine the truth of a thing. I don't know that we necessarily discover the full truth. I think the, the, the true nature of science is that we never stop questioning that which we know if we're dealing with, um, again, the scientific process. So I'm now going to ask a different question for my folks that are in the live feed here. Do you trust the scientific process to give you a good answer, the best answer you can have at present time, if it's actually followed. And as you guys are answering that, accounting for a little bit of time delay there, I, I want to point something out. I want to actually today talk about more about how this is actually relevant in your life. Not, we don't trust institutions made up by people who have an agenda. I mean, part of my problem with what science has become is it really is... The, the, it's now anti-science. It's exactly what it was proposed to solve. 
In other words, we had a time when religious institutions told people the way things were, and that was based on their religious beliefs, and if they said that the earth was the center of the universe, then it was, because God said so, even though you couldn't actually show where God said so. It was the way that certain things were interpreted in a religious text led to it. And science came along and said, yeah, we, we, we shouldn't be doing things this way, should we now? We should actually be asking ourselves, how do we know this thing, and does this thing pass a series of tests. So we developed a scientific methodology so that we could then say, hey, for instance, like in grade school, most of the time you learn about disproving spontaneous generation. There was a time when people thought rotting meat created maggots. And somebody came along and said, well, maybe it's the flies that we see buzzing around that the maggots are turning into that create the maggots. So they put some meat in a jar with a cloth over it where the flies couldn't get in. They put meat next to it, and they compared the two results. And while the one meat got really stinky and nasty, it didn't develop maggots, and the other one did. And now we could look at this, and instead of just saying, oh, this appears this way, we were able to test it. Now, how does that apply in your life? And I'll tell you how it applies in your life. I think it's also why a lot of people that we think of as blue-collar generally vote more right-wing, et cetera, and people like... Go, you know, they're skeptics and they, they're kind of looked down on by people that are more of a white collar type, more tend to vote liberal. The blue collar person is generally, across many of the trades, a troubleshooter. They, they use this exact same process to figure stuff out. And even if they don't, they probably come up in a household with a dad that says, hey, your car's not working. We don't have the money to take it in and get it fixed by some professional, so let's get out under the shade of the tree and let me teach you how to fix a car. So even if they get into a job that's less troubleshoot orientated, they know people that are troubleshooters. They work with people that are troubleshooters. They grow up in a household where they're taught this process. So when you, when you show them something that doesn't really make sense, that doesn't really explain why they should believe it. It just says believe it. They're naturally skeptical, right? And then this tells us how we use this process in our lives. So what do I mean by blue-collar trades here? Some of them are actually fairly high-dollar-paying um, professions that people have respect for as long as they're not busy looking down their nose while they hold a gender studies degree and make lattes at Starbucks, right? So things would be like, you know, a plumber. Uh, an electrician, none of these things require uh, a, a person to be a degreed professional. Uh, a carpenter, who, who's not just building from a set of blueprints, but it's like building custom and has to, even, I don't care when you are building from blueprints, sometimes shit just doesn't work the way it did on a print. Um, I used to be in telecommunications, in, in, in cabling infrastructure. I worked on fiber optic networks. And that sounds really impressive, but it doesn't require a degree. It doesn't even require any sort of a license or what have you. What it requires is to get yourself into an entry-level position with a company that does this and work your way up through it. And then you can just keep going from there. Think about anything that's more of a blue-collar thing, even a welder. You go to a welder and this thing broke, I need you to put it back together for me. Well, a good welder is going to say, hold on, it broke. It wasn't welded it was a single piece, and it fractured or it bent or something went wrong with it, and you broke it. So whatever you were doing with it, while it was brand new or while it came from the factory or wherever you got it, it wasn't capable of dealing with it. So they'll analyze what caused the breakage. Was it you being abusive? And then they'll just say, well, I can fix it, but you need to not do that again. Or they might say, hey, well, there's some things that we can do to improve structural integrity. 
This is how we use this process in our own lives. And this is why people are like, sometimes when they'll send me like a question and like real quick, I'll like drill down and I'll start laying out a solution to their problem. Sometimes I maybe need a little bit of more information and they're like, well, how can you do that across so many different disciplines? It's because the process is the same. And if you want to be able to fix things in your life, as soon as you get down into this process, which is primarily a process of elimination, think about it from a very simple standpoint. Let's think about like an old car, like a, like a 60s or a 70s car, old carburetor car, you know, where things are a little simpler than they are now. You got a car and it won't start. Well, what do you mean it won't start? Does it crank? So it cranks. Okay, so it's not the starter. At least the starter, if it is the starter, it's because the starter's not engaging. The starter's turning over, and it's not a dead battery, right? So then we check, is the starter engaging? Is it actually turning the motor over? And you can usually tell that just by listening to it. Yes, it is. Okay. Do we have compression in the motor? Is there fuel getting to the motor? Is the fuel air? Like, you just, you start eliminating, what are all the things that, based on my knowledge of this thing, that would prevent it from starting? And when you eliminate all the things that it's not, you're left with a thing or one of two things that can be readily tested to determine what it is. Then you can fix it. That's actually how the scientific method is supposed to work. We start out with this concept of we have this issue. We have this issue and we're like, well, is this true? So then we need to eliminate all the things that do not affect this. We get down to a very granular process where we're looking at only specific variables. And then we test those variables, and if that plays out and shows us a thing, then we can draw a fairly confident conclusion. And then we're supposed to publish that data, and it's not just supposed to be scientists look at it and say, yeah, he did it right, and they call that a peer review. It is supposed to be other scientists then pick this up, and they try to do it too. And they either can or cannot replicate your results. And when you get replicated results by different parties who don't have an emotional attachment to the idea in the first place, then you have a proven principle. You can do this in your own backyard if you will have enough personal discipline to not let what you want overweigh what is. If you're, you know, people say, how do you figure out that this plant was deficient in, you know, iron? Well, test the soil. But, you know, before you even do that, you can, like, do you know that you generally you have iron-deficient soil? Or do you have, you know, do you have calcium-deficient soil? Or do you have calcium in a form that's not really bioavailable? Do you have magnesium deficiency? Like, the more you know, the quicker you can get through the process. But what you can do is you can look and say, like, if all your plants of this type have this same problem, what are the most common deficiencies for this plant? So instead of saying, well, but I'm doing everything permaculture. I'm using, I'm using compost that I make myself, so it can't be a problem. Do you know that your compost has copper or magnesium or manganese or whatever it is that you need? If you don't have a source of it in the material you're composting, odds are you're deficient in it. So real quick, as soon as we get honest with ourselves, we can do a test. We can pay a few bucks and have that test come back and tell us these are deficiencies. But what if you do the test and it turns out, you don't have any common deficiencies that result in chlorosis, which is when your leaves turn, you know, yellow. Okay, well, what is my other issues? How much water am I giving these plants? Am I giving them too much? You can overwater a plant. Am I underwatering? Well, we can then just simply water three different sets of plants with three different amounts of water and see if any one of them starts to do better. Are you in a place where, I mean, this is a real easy observation. Generally, you don't even have to test it. Most of the time, if you have a sizable garden or if you have sizable plantings, even if you don't think of them as a garden, they're just different. Like uh, my wife right now has this going on. She has some elephant ears that she planted out in front of the house. She has two elephant ears that are out and they get full sun. 
They're little bitty, they're miserable, they're unhappy. She waters the hell out of them. You really can't overwater those things. They're basically taro. They can grow in a pond, but they're miserable. And then she has like four of them that are a little bit over on the side of the house, and they get shade for about 80% of the day. They're like, is, you know, they're twice the size of my head, and they look beautiful. You don't need to test now. Nature has told you this plant, whether you knew about it or not, whether you understood it or not, this plant's telling you, I like shade. Conversely, when we lived in Pennsylvania, I built this big, giant flower bed for her, and they have, they have a lot less intensity of our sun, even though we have longer term of sun in Pennsylvania, and she planted the whole thing with marigolds. Well, there was a little piece of that bed where the house shaded it quite a bit earlier than it shaded the rest, and all the marigolds were beautiful except the part that got too much shade. So that plant said, hey, this is not a space for me. And the solution wasn't, how do I force this plant to work in this spot? Okay, I understand this space is going to be more sh What grows in this spot? So then we landscape something else into that spot. And this just keeps going, and it just works. And it's how you can solve 90% of your problems without calling a guy. Or if you do call a guy, you take the approach of you get as far as you can with it, and then you say to yourself, self, who do I know that knows the most about this thing? And by that point, you've done enough work that it's kind of like when you, you're going to do a contract, and you write your own contract, and then you get an attorney and you say, can you review my contract and use all that big giant law brain of yours to see what I might have screwed up? And they'll come up with a few things you need to, to fix or to, to rephrase or say maybe you shouldn't even be doing a contract for this issue at all or it needs to be simplified or it needs to be expanded. But in the end, you're going to pay less for that lawyer's time because you've done more of the work. And you're going to get a much better recommendation from that attorney because he knows what you're actually asking him for. So when you go to your best friend and, and you say, I can't get the car to start, And you say it has it has bat you know has battery it, it the starter is turning over the motor has compression I've narrowed it down it's something in the fuel system but I don't know how to fix it right he's got a very small area now to work on assuming you know what you're doing because sometimes you go into a situation like that a person tells you all the things that it isn't and you're like I've seen this enough now because the experience goes with it but most of the time just that simple process. And if you'll implement this into your life, you'll be amazed at how many things you'll just look at and go, oh. You know, if you have, I have some fish tanks in front of me right now. And the two that are on the lower level are using a different intensity light than the two that are on the higher level in a four stack I have. I'm fighting algae on the ones that are on the lower level. What do I need to do? I either need to replace the light with something with less intensity, or I need to put them on their own timer so they have less light duration because I'm creating too much light and I'm creating too much algae growth. Since I know that everything else about those tanks is pretty much the same and the real variable is light. Even if it's not just the light, it's where I need to start. Right? Maybe I have a different plant set up in, in two of them, and because of that different plant set, one's more prone to be outcompeted by algae. But I'm definitely going to start with the lights because I know that's the variable. And once I make that adjustment, then I can look at it and say that worked or it didn't work, or it worked some. So now what's my next variable? And it amazes me. It doesn't amaze me because I, I know what the, what, the, what, the, what the goal is in our education indoctrination system today is to create people that can be controlled. But it amazes me that parents 
often parents who have these blue-collar trades that understand everything that I'm saying today, that are sitting here listening to this right now, and their head's just going, yep, yep, I remember when I did that, yep, my dad taught me that, yep, I know how to fix a... You know, I can figure out how to fix a tire on a bicycle or whatever it is. My buddy Patrick Roman, Roman from MT Knives, this guy's a lineman. That's a profession. That's a licensed trade. It has, you know, a journeyman apprentice type program to it. Um, it's certainly a dangerous job. It requires intelligence. It requires procedure. But it does not prepare somebody to be able to fix an x-ray machine. I'm talking like an x-ray machine at a dentist's office where they put film in your mouth and they put a big thing up there and they radiate your face. Right? So... And maybe it was a different device, but I think that's what he told me years ago, that his dentist had an a, a x-ray machine that was down, and he was bitching about how expensive it was to have somebody fix it. He's like, well, let me look at it. Now, what does an electrical lineman know about an x-ray machine? Well, all machines work from a pretty base, especially electric machines that plug into a wall somewhere, work in a basic process that the electricity flows through the machine, and there's different components. And even if you don't know what they are, you can find out what they are pretty quick. And Patrick fixed the guy's x-ray machine. I think he bartered for, like, the teeth cleaning for his, like, 90 kids or whatever it was. Like, there's there's so many things that we can do if we'll try to do them. Um, I can't... It's like... Bushcraft Wild or something like that, or I'll find him and I'll add him into the notes. He's not in the notes right now, but there's a guy that I recently watched his YouTube channel, and uh, his wife has one too, and they were building a small cabin. And he was explaining how there is nothing to building a cabin that any human being can't do. And he was explaining how there's like this one part in the series where he kind of really, he, got, he has like a jack rant. Like it, I want to get the guy on um, on, on the show on, on the podcast really because it was it was so powerful and it was about how like they got their first house and it was just land and they lived in a tent and they built their house and then they bought another piece of land and they own multiple pieces of land they have houses on them all now and people are always giving them bullshit about not being able to do it and he's like in the end all the skills to building a house are pretty basic and it might not be perfect but if you just start the process you'll figure it out. And what we've done, and this is why we have a society that, that listens to fallacies like, well, I, and they'll say, I trust the science. But they don't know, they can't tell you what that means. If you say, well, exactly what science do you trust? Well, the science that every scientist agrees with. Really, every scientist agrees with it. Well, most of them do. Okay, how, how do they agree with it? What is their, what is their argument? I've even had somebody, yeah, it's Bush Radical, it's exactly who it is there, uh, be, is the uh, the name of the uh, the guy? Be willing uh, in the comments. It is Bush Radical. Um, but yeah, I mean, like what, you say, well, how do you, how does this work? They don't know. Then how can you trust it if you don't know? And I had somebody one time tell me, I believe relativity is real, but I can't do the math. See, my 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 response to that is, neither you nor I probably have the mind of an Einstein, and we couldn't sit down if we didn't know relativity and develop the math. That's actually really hard. The actual math, if, you, if, you, if you're given the equations and taught how to solve them, you can prove it to yourself. Not everybody's going to do it, but you could. And you could learn enough to go, I see where this is going. It does seem plausible that this is valid. But when people start telling you, you need to alter, we need to alter the life of all human beings on the planet, and we're supposed to just trust a thing. 
I'm sorry, that, that flies in the face of everything that I'm saying today. And that's why you have children coming out of school that have not been taught this most basic process. And this is why you have to teach this for your kids. right? You have to teach this yourself to your children. I believe that what we're talking about today, fundamentally at its core, is an innate human right. I also believe it's an innate human behavior and characteristic. And that's why I think they use 13 years to beat as much of it out of you as possible. And unless you go into a discipline in college, like, like true science or medicine, where you're actually doing research and development, all they do is beat it out of you more. And that's why we have 22, 23-year-old kids that, you know, you ask them their opinion, you see these kind of hit pieces the guys on the right do, but they're, they're clearly stupid and they have no ability to defend their position at all. They have no ability to, to, to tell where it comes from. But it's, you're back to Dunning-Kruger effect. They've been told so many times that you're smart because you have initials after your name. They've been told so many times you did a good job and patted on the head because they put the right answer on a piece of paper. That they, their confidence in their belief is way up at 100%. And a true expert, their confidence is going to be somewhere at 70% to 80% once they achieve mastery. Because they'll know that there's always something they can learn. So maybe this thing is true, but maybe there's a better way to do it. They'll stay open to that. right? That there might be another thing. There might be another way. There, maybe there's something we haven't learned yet. And so... I really challenge you to do two things with this episode. One, commit in your life that you'll use this process every time you get an even when you don't need to. When you see something and you come to a conclusion really fast and you know you're right, walk through it anyway. Just take 10 seconds. Train your brain. Train your mind to think this way. And then teach your children to train their mind to think this way. It's one of the greatest gifts you can ever give them. Uh, with that, we'll wrap up the podcast, and I will be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Morning. Hi, folks. Jack Spierko here. Welcome to another edition of Miyagi Mornings. This is going to be episode 142. Uh, this one came in on the sticky post on MeWe. That is probably the best way if you want to ask for uh, me to cover a specific subject is to uh, do a little question and give me some details over on MeWe. Here's the question that I got today. Do you have a podcast on how to go from high school student to successful business owner without four plus years of college? I have a homeschooled kid that has wanted to open her own business since she was five, but everyone tells her she must go to college and get that business degree. That's interesting, isn't it? Everyone tells her, everyone tells her, She must go to college and get that business degree. Um, before I get into this subject, and I'm going to say that maybe for some people, going to college and getting a business degree is the right path to entrepreneurship. First, I'm going to invoke one of Spirko's laws of life. And that is we do not take advice from people about a thing um, that they're not in some way successful with, right? You know what I mean? Like, If someone wants to tell me how to run a restaurant and they've never run a restaurant, I'm not probably listening to them about how to run a restaurant. If they've at least run a business, I might listen to them about how to run a restaurant from the perspective of somebody who's run a business. That makes sense, right? And I'm asking a question here in the, uh, the live stream. Uh, do you think it's wise to take advice from someone on how to do a thing they themselves have not done? So... Um, when this person here is telling me that everyone is telling this young girl 
the path to your success is to go to business school and get a business degree if you want to be an entrepreneur. My thought is, I'll bet you, not a single one of these everyones has ever run a business successfully. And most of them have never run a business. They're saying what they have been conditioned to say. And so my first bit of advice is do not take advice from people who have not done well at the thing that they're giving you advice on. And, and definitely don't take advice from people on how to do a thing they've never done at all. It's amazing to me how quickly people will open their mouth and tell a person far more motivated than they are how to do a thing that they would never even try to do themselves. And of course, their mindset is, well, you gotta go to, gotta go to business school. All successful entrepreneurs go to business school. And I'm gonna tell you that there's probably pretty close to an even split with, um, with this subject on, on entrepreneurs. I don't think it's that, you know, most successful entrepreneurs don't go to college. I bet you it's close to half and half. If you judge successful business based on, and this is how I would judge a successful business myself, five years after it started, it either still exists or it's changed into something that's better, and it provides enough income for the person running the business to live life probably better than they would if they had a job in that sector. I, I would call that business successful. And if you do that in your first year, you make enough money to qualify under that definition, but that business goes bankrupt by its third or fourth year, it's also not successful. It wasn't built with longevity. Now, if you're a young person like we're talking about here, that's not necessarily the end of the world. I mean, you've learned so much from that process, and you probably are going to take another shot at it. And for my people that are in, in the audience now that are live, Um, if you did start a business at any point in your life, how old were you when you started your first business? That's my next question uh, that I'll be using and referring back to as we go through this subject. So I, I know with what I've just said, and I know many of you have listened to me for a long time, and you're probably thinking, Jack's going to just say, just start a damn business, don't worry about going to college. I, I don't think that's a reasonable, pragmatic way to look at this, though. I think we actually have to look at your three primary ways that you can start a business, especially when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you're just finishing up with, with, uh, with high school, and you're trying to figure out, like, what's my path forward? I want to be an entrepreneur. One path is going to college. Another path is, and this is kind of an in-between path, take a job in the industry, in the sector, in the thing, in the niche that you want to build a business in. So I would, I've already talked about running a restaurant, but I'd say like running a restaurant is a difficult business. And so if you did want to run a, a restaurant, um, it's also a place with a barrier to entry for employment that's very, very low. Anybody can go get a job like washing dishes and busting tables as a step in the door and end up fairly quickly in a decent restaurant, like doing some assistance in the kitchen and learning how to cook. Uh, which is something that I really don't think you're going to do well with a restaurant if you don't learn how a kitchen runs. And so since it's relatively easy to get a job, the jobs pay decent for what you're asked to do, and it will give you a brutal understanding of the commitment you're undertaking. If it was something like that, you know, I, I'm leaning toward let, let's consider taking a job. The taking of a job in the area does two things. One, it helps you learn it 
learn the area, learn the business, learn the sector, learn you know all the things about it that you actually need to know to be effective in it. But the other thing it does is it gives you a real quick wake-up lesson, do you like this? Because, for instance, I know a gal uh, with my, my, one of my best friend's ex-wives. Um, she went through all the hell to become an architect, and she hates being an architect. Now, she had to go to college and all because you have to do that, but think about that. Putting that much time, money, and effort, losing all that opportunity cost, and then finding out you hate it. Well, college is a way that most people do that, but starting a business can be a way that you do that as well. And if you become successful but you hate it, Then you get stuck in it. You feel like you can't get out of it unless you've built it to be sold, which you also should be doing. And then the other option is to go straight into running your own business. Personally, I did both two and three. I started, you know, I just asked the audience here, you know, how old were you when you started your first business? Um, if you want to just say doing a thing independently for money, I was in like middle, not even middle school. I was in elementary school. And the first thing I think I ever did kind of hustle in money was um, back in the early 80s, cinnamon toothpicks were all the rage. And like my dad's like, you know, those are just toothpicks soaked in cinnamon oil. And I'm like, really? Where does one get this cinnamon oil? So I was selling little bags of toothpicks, you know, for a quarter. And there were more toothpicks and better toothpicks than you got from the ones in the store for a quarter. And they cost me about... It was costing me about two cents a bag to make them, so it's a pretty good markup. I wasn't going to become a mogul off of that, but that's part of why with this girl's coming from, um, some of us are just wired this way. We see an opportunity, and we realize, hey, I can capitalize on that. However, I did get jobs. My first job I ever had that was like a decent-paying job, I pulled parts at a junkyard for a dude named Muskrat Purcell. And I learned a lot from that job. I learned about you know how to get parts off cars, but I learned responsibility. Like I never even saw the guy most of the time. I'd go in the office. I had my own keys. He'd have a list of where the cars were and the parts I needed to pull. And in the drawer, there was my money from last week. He paid me in cash. And I'd go around and I'd pull all the parts and put them in the bin. And if there was anything that like the part was actually bad or something was wrong with it, I'd make a note about it and put it in there. It's before anybody had a cell phone or anything like that. And you know, for I did that for like a year and a half. I had other jobs at the same time. That job, even though it was a job, was very entrepreneurial. Because if I got up there and he had ten parts I needed to pull, I made the same money if I pulled those parts in two hours or five hours. So I got that mindset going there, too. But then I joined the Army. Uh, I went into sales and marketing. I learned a ton, and I launched my most successful business venture ever, the Survival Podcast, in my 30s. So I had you know website-based businesses. I always had something on the side, and some of them made me more money than my J-O-B, but I still wasn't ready to go headlong out into the world. And I think this is actually a really good way for many people to get into running your own businesses, go somehow learn the field. And I learned so much. Like when I think about how valuable, even though it was a miserable bastard company to work for, you know, working as a regional sales VP for Fluke Networks for three years and managing a $500 million sales channel, I learned more from those three years than I guarantee you somebody coming out of business school learned. 
as far as how to actually manage cost centers, how to deal with retail and distribution and, and uh, various tiered of distribution channels, how to manage cost of goods sold or COGS, basic financial terms. And then working as a year as, as director of marketing for Sage Telecom, I learned so much about how to think differently about marketing than just, hey, let's get this, let's get this business closed. Right? I learned a lot about uh, marketing analytics. Even though I'm not an analytical specialist, I learned what could be done, and then I applied that to what I knew about search and, and social marketing on the web. And, like, that was so valuable. Does that mean I couldn't have done TSP right out of high school had it been a possibility? When I got out of high school, you weren't running a podcast or running Internet yet. Uh, not the Internet that we think of today when we use that term anyway. And, and I probably could have, but I don't think I'd be anywhere near as good at it. I don't think you guys would, would listen to me as much. I think one of the things that I was able to bring to the table right out of the gate with TSP was financial knowledge and things like that. So there is a real place for kind of this this uh, this lateral or, or a parallel career field as well. There's also a place for just getting it done. And I think the most successful young entrepreneurs – pretty much come out of the gate right out of school when they do it, and maybe they fail a couple times so they figure something out. Or they tend to go to college, they start doing something peripheral at the same time, and they drop out of college. Some of our most successful business people are college dropouts. Well, that brings me to what does college bring to the table? Who is college right for? I think college is heavily right for people. If you want a business that's going to be a really big business, And you're going to go out and you're going to look for VC money, venture capitalist money. You're going to go out and talk to angel investors. You're going to be putting business plans together. And you're going to be going to banks and you're going to be saying, hey, I want a small business loan. You do learn a lot about that if you go into business school. In fact, it's one of the few things of real value that they'll teach you. The other thing that happens in college that is incredibly valuable if you go to a prestigious enough college so that some of the kids sitting next to you have multimillionaires or billionaires for parents. Because this is, if you go to like Texas State or something like that down here or whatever, it's not so much true. It's a good school. It's a good business school. But you're not going to, you're not going to have like SMU School of Business it has some of the, more connected, it doesn't ring like an Ivy League, and it's not, but it has a very high number of highly connected people, and the professors at SMU School of Business are also highly connected. Like one thing that SMU did right with their business school is you don't go to college and get a teaching degree and knock around in the university system for a few years, get tenure, and teach there. You actually have to go out and do something in business successfully. So if you can get into a place where you know you look left and right and all around you and you spend four years rubbing elbows and shoulders with people who are connected, if you want to build a big business, if you want to bring in investors, that can have as much value as anything they teach you directly. So I don't, I don't necessarily look at any of these options as bad. I just look at them as what works for you. And here's my five big questions to ask yourself. What area do you want to be in? I mean... I basically did whatever gave me a return. You know, I sold cell phones. I sold freaking pagers online. I had websites that sold long-distance service all around the country. 
Um, and, and I mean, any long distance sales site back then did that. But I, what I mean is, I built sites that, like, if you went to Google or Yahoo or any of the other like search engines at the time and typed in like long distance phone service Philadelphia, you'd find one of my websites. I didn't give a shit about long distance phone service. It was just something I could sell, and I made money. Like TSP was when I found what I really loved, you know, and I developed my skills as a teacher and things like that through. Learning. So, if you would have asked me this question when I was 18 or 20 or even 25, my response would have been, "I don't know something." That's okay, but if you really know what you want to do, you can start forming a plan a lot quicker. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn enough to figure out what I loved, and I wasn't sure what it was yet. Um, what are your current strengths and weaknesses? You know, my strengths back at this time of my life was I would, if, if, if there was something in the way, I'd move it. If there was a door and it was locked, I'll pull the hinges off and go through it. Like, I, I had ambition. I had a willingness to work till 3 o'clock in the morning. I, it didn't matter what it was. If I had to travel, uh, it didn't matter. And so that was a strength. A weakness was, if you would have asked me when I was 22 years old, what's COGS? Not only would I not have known but I would have known that I didn't know. So, like, where are you weak? Because once you define where you're weak, you can f figure out the educational path. And today's a different world than when I was a kid. A lot of this stuff that seems really complicated, you can take just the core business skills and, and, and things for free. Even a lot of colleges that you're supposed to pay to go to, maybe you don't get the credit for it, but what you need is the knowledge. So, like, you can take courses at MIT for free. In fact, I think MIT, and I'm not saying that's a good business school, obviously, um, but I think you can take any course that any MIT student can take, you can take for free. And I'm sure those options exist elsewhere. But you need to do a, an analysis, like, as a business person, where am I weak? And what is my best path to shore that up? Next, do you plan on seeking funding via investors? If you do, even if you are not going to go to college for that kind of networking effect, then you know that you need to learn how, how do I write a business plan? And, and what is the difference between a plan and a proposal to an investor? And how do those two things go together? Again, when I was 22, I wouldn't have known that was a thing. They're the same, right? No, not really. Not really. They include a lot of components of each other, but no. So how, how are you going to go about raising funding if it's going to be necessary for what you're doing? Next, um, Do you want to run a huge business? Do you want a mid-sized business? Do you want something that's more like a sole proprietorship? Do you see yourself running a business that's really just you? You're the only person in the business, but you're employing contract labor or you're employing like, you know, outsource or outtasking models, more like four-hour work week, which by the way, great book to read. Some of it's not as practical as made out to be. Boy, get your head thinking. Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. I definitely recommend this young girl read that book and, and start learning to think differently. Um, also totally a fake book written as though it's true. Rich Dad, poor dad. Yeah, it's not a real story. It's all bullshit. Uh, Kiyosaki's dad, you know, retired with a salary of about 330 grand a year, and that was a long time ago. He was one of the most high-ranking people in the education system in the state of Hawaii. Right? He made a ton of money, but the book is still damn good. That's why it sold millions of copies because it's damn good. Get that mindset right. But do you, what kind of business do you want to run? If you're thinking like some people are 18 years old and they're thinking, I want to build the next big tech business. 
I want to grow that sucker, and I want to take it public. You probably do want to spend some time in business school then. And you want to get into the most prestigious, most connected program you can get in, even if you don't complete it. You just want, because you, it's so much easier to meet people in that environment than to go trying to seek them out outside of a network. Right? If you're like, I want to build like a whole shitload of websites that all work in this niche and they all sell product and I want to set up outsourcing and, you know, basically drop ship and I, or I want to go, you know, I want to build an Amazon, then just do it. Do it and you'll learn what you need to learn as you go, right? It, it, it all depends. And then, um, why do you want to run a business in the first place? And this kind of goes back through the other four questions, right? But, It's, it's still its own thing. So do you want to run your own business because you have some misguided belief that you won't have to work hard? Because if that's what you're thinking, you, you work so much harder running a business than you do being an employee. Um, I, and you won't ever understand that until you do it. I can think back to when I was in my 20s. I worked in structured cabling and optical cabling And I worked my ass off, and I worked harder than anybody around me, and, and I rose up through that system really quick, but I was not paid really well for what I was doing. But I was paid better than I thought I was now that I understand how to calculate how much I cost my employer. I knew what the client was being billed. I knew what I was being paid. I did not understand the employee overhead at all at that point. I was very arrogant, and I was like, man, I could you know, just get that and for myself. And that's good because it motivates you. But when I started running it for myself, I'm like, oh. And even when I started doing sales jobs, sales jobs are incredibly entrepreneurial. Because if you think about it, your most important metric in running a business is how much business do you bring in? So a sales job is another good training tool. I think it's probably the best training tool I ever had. But why do you, what are you motivated? Do you want to change the world? You're probably going to go broke. You're probably going to go broke. You can change the world, but if that's your, like there's so many young people like, I want to go out, man, and like give half my profits to some charity in Africa or whatever. And what you need to do is go out and build a profitable business if you want to change the world. And you don't need to give, other than being ethical, which you should do anyway in your business, don't give any concern to that stuff. And then when you build a really successful business, then you can help found a nonprofit, and you can take excess profit from your profitable business and put it in your nonprofit and direct it toward that world-changing mission. And that's okay to kind of have the knowledge that's what you want to do and have it in your back pocket. But one of the most astute things I ever heard anybody say in my life was Mark Shepard uh, at a permaculture uh, thing, and he had all these young permaculture people, and they're all big on nonprofits. And he said something that I thought was freaking amazing. And that was a nonprofit without a profitable entity attached to it is a professional begging organization. That's all that it is. So if you want a nonprofit component to what you're doing, you need profit which to dispose of through the nonprofit, if that makes sense. So do a really big analysis personally of what, why do you want to do this in the first place? And I'll tell you, my motivation was simple. I wanted life on my terms. I don't care if I have to work hard or harder. Not a problem. I don't care if I have to suffer through some things until I make enough money to get back to where I was with employment. Not a problem. What I want to know is when I get up in the morning, I determine what I do. And given that that's the case, 
there's a whole shitload of things that I could be doing right now other than running a podcast. It just, okay, then you start Venn diagramming, like, what do you love and what are you passionate about? Well, I'm passionate about independence. I'm passionate about real environmental issues. I'm passionate about systems and critical thinking. I'm passionate about teaching. So this is a perfect job for me, and guess what? You can't get this job. You can go create it for yourself. There's no, you're not going to ever like open the newspaper, or go on LinkedIn, whatever. Professional podcaster wanted. That's not a thing. You know, we're looking for somebody to set up his own show every day, do whatever the hell he wants, and we're going to pay you uh, $150,000 a year. That's not a job that you can. So that's the other thing. That's why we want to really spend some time with this. Why do you want to do this? And this young gal, this is what she needs to ask herself. Because if you want to live life on your own terms, and what you, when you start you know, doing that Venn diagram overlay, and you start thinking about what you're skilled at and what you're interested enough in to get better at and what you're passionate about and what you love, you're going to often find to really have what you're looking for, it doesn't exist. And so then you have to ask yourself, if you're going to create something that doesn't exist as a job, how much will business school really help you? And I'm back to if you're not going to be seeking out funding, trying to hire lots of people, if it's going to be more of a one-man, one-woman show, then probably not a lot. And at least, you know, I guess you call it auditing courses, like, but it's not even auditing courses because you're taking for, at least take some of these courses online first and see if they're going to help you. Because what happens is you have your really motivated young person and they're getting ready to go out and experience life, right? And then all the well-meaning people around them say, oh, you have to go to college. You have to go to college. These people have done no math on the subject. They have no idea. I mean, you need to be modeling, like, what is my degree going to cost? What does a job pay? How does it actually accelerate my ability to launch my own business? All of that stuff. And make sure the numbers work. Because if those numbers don't work, um, then that degree is worth as much as the advice from people telling you how to do a thing they have not done. Zero. And so that's... That's kind of the best I can do uh, for you guys today on this subject. And with that, we'll wrap up the podcast. And I will be back tomorrow. And we're going to talk a little bit, I think, tomorrow about cryptocurrency. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to episode 143 of Miyagi Mornings. Today's episode is called, What Would a Deflationary Global Economy Look Like? Specifically, a Bitcoin deflationary economy. And I'm making sure I leave Bitcoin in the title, mainly because whenever I do it, you know, a show on, on Bitcoin or anything on cryptocurrency, it gets a lot of views, including from people that don't normally watch. So why would I take Bitcoin out of this? Because Bitcoin would be the most likely deflationary economy. It's where the question came from, from that van vantage point. But this question I'm really going to answer today really has absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin per se. Because the core of the question is about deflation. And we've been conditioned to believe that deflation is bad. Let me read this question. I I love this question because this question is from uh, Dan in Tennessee. And this shows that Dan is a long-term student of what we teach about money at TSPC. How would a deflationary economy work? If our entire economy was based on a currency with a fixed supply like Bitcoin, one, what's the velocity of money look like? See, the fact that he even knows to ask that question, I, I love that. Two, 
How is money lent, particularly for large long-term lending, houses, new factories, etc.? etc.? Three, how is the economic growth affected or measured? Four, wouldn't percent of economic growth roughly translate to the percent of appreciation of the currency? You'd think so, but no. No, not really. Uh, but that's a great question. I'd like to hear your take on this. Thanks for all what you do, Dan in Tennessee. Okay, let's start out with there are probably at least a few people that will listen to this and go, what the hell is the velocity of money? And I try to keep these Miyagi episodes, which in the original you know, vision were like 8 to 10 minutes, 20 minutes-ish. And sometimes they go a little longer, sometimes a little shorter. But I, I, I can't explain all the terminology. So there are links in these video notes today where you can go listen to three podcasts I've done really giving the kind of background Dan is drawing from. So if anything here doesn't make sense, I'd say go listen to those and come back and then listen to this again, and it probably will. Um, but... I think we have to really start out with something that's hard for us to do, and that's be honest that we have never experienced this thing that they've tried to make you afraid of. Everybody says, you know, all the experts, by the way, the same experts that told you not to worry about your money in the stock market in 07, 08, when I said get your money out, those guys, they all say deflation is horrible. Um, you can find tons of examples of experts saying things like, man, deflation is a much bigger problem than inflation. And you might think I would just tell you those people are full of shit. They are, but they aren't. They are, but they aren't. Now, how does that work? Our economy, as we see it, as it exists right now, is built on an inflationary monetary system by intent and by design. So, of course, if everything you've built is designed for inflation, and you get deflation, it's a problem. Especially for the people that, like, control you through money. Like your government, like the banks, like the corporations, right? And I'm not talking about the corporations like the kind of corporation I or some of you own. You, it, those of you that own companies, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mega corporations that can borrow money for next to nothing. right? They can borrow money for less than the rate of inflation. That makes the money essentially free. It's a negative interest rate loan. And so governments, by having the power to print money, can do things that they normally, they basically can circumvent, you know, even though I'm opposed to any form of a state, states can be somewhat effective in that if a state doesn't have money and a citizen refuses to pay more taxes through, like, if you do this shit, we're going to either vote you out or drag you out, you pick, then you can actually put limits on what a government can do. They can only work with what they have, and now they have to start making decisions with what they have. If you have an artificially able-to-be-inflated economy, there's literally no check on government. You put anybody you want in office, and the very power to print money becomes the absolute power that corrupts absolutely. And that's what we have. And so, naturally, they don't want to give this up. So, of course, they would create all these boogeyman stories. But one thing the gold bugs have right is that gold was money for more than a thousand years, right? Let's just say a thousand years. So how, how can something that kind of worked for a thousand years all of a sudden not work anymore? And gold is not a totally deflationary economy. This is why I think that Bitcoin actually makes a harder money than gold. Because if the price of gold goes up really high, people will dig deeper and harder for more gold. And so the, the, the total supply of gold has continued to increase 
in modern times. And it will continue to increase for the foreseeable future. It just is limited in its rate of increase. Where Bitcoin is, this is it, boys. You ain't getting no more. But what have I taught you guys about businesses when it really comes down to it? They'd rather have bad news that's known than potentially good news that's unknown. The more certain you are of a thing, the more you can plan long term. So a deflationary economy leads to the type of things that we had in this country, for instance, until we left it, and we I mean when we all the way left it in the 30s through the 70s. That was a period in there, a transitory period where we went, that's real transitory. We went from gold back to partially gold back to no gold back in, the, in that period. What did we do before them? I want you, you know, anybody that's listening to the live stream, um, if you've been to New York City, let me know. Just say I've been to New York City or whatever. Um, and if you have been, I want you to think about the architecture, the buildings, some of the churches. And there's other cities in the country that we can see this in, but none I think are as dramatic as, as New York City. Some of the churches in New York City are as absolutely artistically amazing as like great archaeology. The level of detail. Does anybody listening here in in the the comments know what I'm talking about? Like you've seen it and you've stood there and you've actually stared at some of this architecture stared at some of these details, these sculptures, almost it looks like somebody sculpted it out of sand, some artist in a sandcastle competition, and you just stand there in awe, and you think of what kind of man hours were necessary to build something like this. Or when we came back from World War II, and especially when, when Ike got involved, and we put together... The, the, the intent to build the highways and bridge system that we were inspired by the Autobahn in Germany, the quality of that work, the fact that, yeah, it's fallen apart, but it's lasted like three times longer than it was supposed to. And you look at they did all that work back then. Blue-collar people made great salaries. My dad made more money working overtime on highway construction in that time period than most doctors running their own practice made at the time. Right, And they were able to do that. And they built this incredible infrastructure. We can't even afford to maintain it today. And your reasoning behind it is inflation. That, that You have to start thinking about the harder the money, the longer the term of the money, then the longer the term of the infrastructure, the, the, we can build hard things instead of soft things. Today, all money goes into what? Technology. Right, And most of it's code. It has no real cost of maintaining it. They talk about infrastructure, they're going to have an infrastructure bill for $6 trillion or something. They're, going to, they're not going to fix anything. Who here thinks, let me know, do you think they're going to fix anything in the live stream, right? They're not going to fix anything with this money. That's why they're referring, that's why you have, you know, retards like AOC saying, you know, childcare is infrastructure. They have no idea what the word infrastructure even means. We, we don't build great things anymore, and we can't even maintain the great things that we built. Now, I'm not trying to skate the question. I'm just trying to set the perspective. So let's start out with some of the parts of this, this wonderful question. What does the velocity of money look like? The short answer for those of you like, what the hell does that even mean? When you hear that inflation is they printed money, printing money doesn't actually cause inflation directly. It's an indirect thing. 
You print the money if it doesn't move, if it doesn't go anywhere, if it doesn't get spent, and if it doesn't multiply, then it doesn't have really that much effect. We could print another $20 trillion, $20 trillion tomorrow, put it you know, in a bank account electronically somewhere out there and not spend any of it. It will have zero effect. And if we give it all to somebody who won't invest it, it won't do much with it, and we'll spend little bits of it, it, it won't have a huge effect either. The velocity of money is when that money gets spent and respent and respent, and more when it ends up in deposits in bank and then they lend out against it. So it's lending, because remember, when banks lend money, they don't lend money that they have. They create a promissory note on their books based on your promise to pay the money back. They don't actually give you money from their deposits. They're, when they write a check to you, they're writing a check back by nothing but you. You are the backing of that. So when you go borrow $250,000 to build a house, you don't get $250,000 from the bank. They make brand new $250,000 out of thin air. And that increases the monetary supply. And the more money they have, the more money they can loan. And the more money that circulates, the more money people can borrow. And that leads to a relatively quick velocity of money. There's where your inflation actually comes from. So what happens to the velocity of money when we go into a deflationary, not period? We have to separate this. Deflationary period is the 1970s. It's stagflation. It's things went wrong. We're supposed to have inflation. The thing was everything is designed for inflation, and now we have deflation. That's a disaster. I don't say that it isn't. However, when you have a design deflationary standard and people know that that's it, what it does, it absolutely slows down the velocity of money because it favors savers, it favors investors in hard investments, and it disfavors reckless borrowing and borrowing in general. There's, another, there's a famous quote that's something like, gold is the money of kings, um, silver is the money, I think, of, uh, of nobles. Barter is the money of peasants, and debt is the money of slaves. And in a hard money system, that's true. In a soft money system, debt is the money of kings. Because the kings don't borrow the money, they lend it. And so it is the same but different, man, once again. So you have a slower velocity of money. Um, then, then how does that affect borrowing, right? Because... Let's say that I need to build a house, and we've gone to a Bitcoin standard, and I need two and a half Bitcoin to build a house, because it's gone way, way up, and I'm building a really nice house for that. Now I have to pay back my, my borrower in the currency that I bought, and I am now paying that, that lender back at a rate that whatever my interest rate is, I need to add to it the, 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 Basically, the, inf the, the the deflationary rate of the currency. How much more valuable is it? How much harder do I have to work for the same amount every year? Right? Because since the money becomes stronger, you see how that works? Like it, it starts to bite in the other direction. Well, yes and no. So we have this idea. It's the same thing that leads people to ask you questions like, well, if you go keto and you start losing weight, what's to stop you from losing weight? Well, your body's balanced. Your body doesn't just keep running. Like, you don't go keto and go from 300 pounds to 180 and look great. And then you just keep losing weight and you end up down at like 95 pounds and you look like you were in a gulag. Huh, did I say gulag? Anyway, yeah, like that doesn't happen, right? Like, you reach a point where since you're doing the right thing, you reach a stasis. 
So there is a transitory period that is a bloodbath coming in this, if it happens, right? Because remember, I've not said Bitcoin will become the global reserve currency. I said it will become a global reserve for currencies, and that's a different thing than we're talking about today. We're talking about Dreamland where this happens. So as this occurs, people that have Bitcoin will hoard it like never before. And it's gonna, this part will happen. As more and more people compete for what's left, and it drives it up, But there, there comes a point where if you're a Bitcoin multi-billionaire, what are you going to do? Just like look at your ones and zeros? You're going to go out and spend it. There, there does come a point where you're like, you know what? I'm going to go buy myself a yacht. I'm going to go build a company because I want to build shit. right? So like, eventually some of this money then starts to move. And no matter what gets hoarded, you get to a point of equalization. And then you get into a much more what the gold economy looked like before we screwed it up. You get to a point where money basically becomes very, very stable, and maybe it goes from, you know, 200... Uh, I mean, right now, Bitcoin over any five-year period has 200% annualized returns. Well, that can't go on forever, right? And if you start looking at, well, what, is, what do certain prices of Bitcoin mean? One billion dollar... One, I'm sorry, one, one billion. One million dollar Bitcoin means one Satoshi is a penny. So it's easy from there, isn't it? $5 million Bitcoin, one Satoshi is a nickel. $10 million Bitcoin, which is when you get Bitcoin into kind of the market capitalization value of gold, a Satoshi is a dime. And if you look around your society today, what do you want that a dime would be too expensive for? And as that number goes up, the amount that it can go up becomes limited. Now, somebody's going to be like, Bitcoin's crazy, you know, you're nuts, you know, it's just a scam, it's a pyramid. No, just, I don't have time for you today. I don't have time for anybody like that today. We're saying if, they, if it was adopted, how would it work? And I'm telling you that there would come a point where people could do business, transact in Satoshis, and so maybe thinking in Satoshis rather than whole Bitcoins is a better way to do this. And now you end up with something that's much more level. You end up with something where, you know, Bitcoin is going up over time about 2% to 4% in value. So who really has a problem with, you know, let's say 3% to 5% to 6% on loans? I mean, I know right now when you hear 6% on a mortgage, you're like, holy shit! Right? Okay, that's because you live in an upside-down world. You don't know that, like, it wasn't that long ago, I mean, it really wasn't that long ago, like 5-6% on a mortgage was like, nobody even bat an eye at it. It was like, oh, that's pretty good, right? And so what does this lead to? This leads to, when I buy a home, we start living more like our grandparents did. You ever wondered why they did this? Because they had the vestiges, the last vestiges, the whispers, the memories of this, this type of life. They bought a house, and when they had an extra kid, what did they do? Did they, like, get a giant SUV and move to a new house and call their first house a starter house? No, they added on a room. They added on, and they took care of shit, didn't they? They valued it, and they paid it off over time. And in the middle of this, we switched from this very stable economy to this falsely manipulated economy. And it benefited people initially because my grandfather 
remortgaged his home right before he was shipped off for World War II to make sure he could put some money into my grandmother's hands. And he mortgaged the entire, almost the entire value of his property, which was about a one and a half acre homestead in Pennsylvania with like a four bedroom house on it, for $1,300. And by the time he came back from the war, my grandmother had already managed to take the money he was sending home as a soldier and pay it down by like 70%. And then as soon as he got a job as a carpenter, they paid it off like that. Now, that's a different world. But what happened is people started to understand this game and say, well, then I can go buy this house. And then as the value of money declines against the loan, it's actually really cheap money. And during a period from the 40s through the 60s, this was really, really beneficial during the time the boomers were getting born to the World War II generation who came back and had jobs to take on and could make good money. So they became sold on it because they benefited from the, the, the transition without an understanding of what they were doing to their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. In their minds, they, they couldn't see that one day a house that would, you, you could easily buy for $20,000 was going to be worth a million dollars, and they couldn't figure out how that would be a problem because they had never seen it before. It didn't make any sense. They had, they had one real thought thro- uh, flaw that generation. They trusted our government. And they thought, and it was even worse, they thought they were trusting the government and they were trusting the banks. Uh, so lending would end up equalizing. Um, economic growth, how would it be affected or how would it be measured? Economic growth, we think in dollars and it needs to go up. Economics should be measured in can the average person who does a good day's work and brings value to the market afford to live well? That's how we should be. We should be measuring our economics based on the quality of life of individuals and the stability long term of that quality of life. Because how many of you, back to the uh, live feed here, have seen a person that looked like they were doing great? I mean, especially like they went into a business for themselves or something like in the construction industry during a, a housing boom. And they're driving like a $50,000 pickup truck. They got no problems. They built themselves a house. They're just doing great. They have like 10, 15 people working for them. And the housing market takes crap. And everything was built on this, this tower of nonsense and in this inflationary manipulated economy. And somebody in the banking system decided, yeah, we're growing too fast. So they actually slowed the economy down on purpose. Fed does that all the time. Or the system just starts to break down and they keep pumping money in and it doesn't work. You have a much more stable environment. You know, when I, I've mentioned the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. In that book, one of the things Rich Dad tells, tells young Robert, again, it's a fable, but it's still a great, uh, a great piece of information as far as it goes as a book. He says, well, Robert says to him, well, shouldn't prices go up? And he says, no, in a well-ordered and run economy, prices should go down. Prices should go down. And, and so that's, we, we would measure economic growth as the, the suppression of price inflation is capped. And then you have an equalizing economy where people can go out with certainty and knowledge and invest long term in themselves, mostly just by saving some of what they make without fear that it will be eroded. It will slow down investment. 
But what will slow down is the investment in, I'm trying to get rich quick. It'll push investments into the very long-term time horizon. And if you ask me, we were much better off as a civilization when we invested in building that way. I, I think of those, those churches in New York City where I look at them and I say, we literally cannot build this today. But they built this in the 1890s, in the 1880s. How have we fallen so far? We can't build a building today. We can't afford to build a building today that they built 100 to 120 years ago. How weak have we become because of this tit of printing on-demand money? And wouldn't economic growth roughly translate into the appreciation of the currency? Okay, let's say that it does. So let's say that the currency appreciates at 2%. Okay? Anybody got a problem with long-term, sustained 2% growth of the economy? I don't. I don't at all. What does that result in? It results in stability. It results in long-term thinking. It, it, it results in people investing very conservatively instead of very aggressively. It results in people thinking differently, a little bit more like our grandparents and great-grandparents. Anybody here think it would be bad if we all thought a little bit more like our grandparents did? Especially if you're like my age. I don't know. If, if like your grandparents are my age, maybe not so much. I'm a freaking unicorn in my age demographic. What about my grandparents? I'm talking about my grandfather who was so old in, in this world that not only did he go to World War II, he went as a fairly older man and he was almost young enough, uh, I'm sorry, almost old enough to get drafted into World War I. Not quite, but almost. Like, I'm talking about that generation. You, you know, a, a first-generation Ukrainian immigrant that came through Romania to get here because he couldn't get here directly from Ukraine at that time. Do you, do you really think we wouldn't be better off if we thought more like that than what you see around you today? That's what a, that's what a deflationary economy looks like. The transition, God only knows. And that's why I say get your hands on some hard money right now. And yes, that would be Bitcoin. That is the hardest money we have. I would also say it is gold and it is silver. I mean, there's there's going to come a point where this is all going to come to a reckoning. And as soon as the elite figure out how to make it work for themselves, they'll do it. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.